Welcome to Ing Podcast, a production of Menno Media's Leader Magazine. Our world is increasingly complex, fast-paced, and divided. How are people of faith bringing their best selves to the world each day? How are we leading, growing, and being as people of God? Ing Podcast is a place to share insights and stories from individuals creatively engaging the present and moving into the future. We're joined on today's episode by Dr. James Skillen, Associate Professor and Preserve Director at Calvin University and author of the recent book, This Land is My Land, Rebellion in the West. Jesus is not the image of the president we think we need to do this. We need someone who's going to ride in on a horse, who's going to slay our adversaries, and, and basically clear the deck so that we can rebuild the America that we remember. But it's a pretty dangerous uh, position to be in when as a Christian, you're looking back at the Crusades for a model, even metaphorical, of how we need to be in the present. Dr. Skillen will be sharing more about his passion and desire to connect the dots between faith, politics, the environment, and American individualism. Welcome back to Ing Podcast, everyone. I'm Ben Weidman, and I'm excited today to have some time to talk with Dr. James R. Skillen, who is the Associate Professor of Environmental Studies at Calvin University, and he's also the Director of Calvin's Ecosystem Preserve and Native Garden on campus there. He teaches at the intersection of environmental history, law, and science, including regular field courses on federal lands in California, Nevada, and Oregon. He's also the author of a recent book titled, This Land is My Land, Rebellion in the West. Dr. Skillen, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. It's a privilege. I'm wondering, for those who don't know you, um, how do you introduce yourself these days? Thanks. Well, I would say, uh, first and foremost, I am someone who enjoys... Uh, studying and recreating in God's creation. I'm passionate about environmental protection. Uh, I'm excited about the way in which I and uh, my students experience God Mm. in the non-human world. And so I think whether it's in the classroom, whether it's as a father um, with my friends, one of the greatest joys is to see God in the world that God has made. I think I saw on a uh, an, an earlier uh, a Calvin article about you that uh, if you, if it was your pre- preference or up to you, you'd just describe yourself as a backpacker, um, <laughs> which I think says something about a, a person with some academic prestige, an author who's also you know just fully at home in the outdoors. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, years ago my wife and I hiked something called the Pacific Crest Trail. Uh, that goes from Mexico to Canada. Uh, We hiked something called the Colorado Trail. And life's responsibilities makes that length of trip no longer possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I I make every effort uh, to get back out in the woods. And I think at Calvin, I really enjoy both working at the Ecosystem Preserve with students. And then I also, in my field courses, I... Uh, let's see, this coming year in May, I'll teach a course on wilderness management, and that'll be a week of backpacking in Yosemite or Kings Canyon National Park, and then car camping and working in the surrounding national forests. Wow. Is there a, a moment in your in your early life that you can point to that, that drew you to this intersection of um, kind of your faith and and being out in creation? My story, I think like many Christians who are involved in environmental work, uh, it began with something that I loved or something Mm -hmm. that I enjoyed. Uh, I think, you know, most people don't come to environmental work just out of a sense of obligation or duty. You know, I ought to care. And for me, that really was the experience of some of the large open spaces in the American West. I had grown up on the East Coast, largely near Washington, D.C., and I think in sixth grade when I made a trip to Yellowstone National Park, Grand Tetons, I was just captivated by this world that was so immense beyond the sort of obvious and visible human infrastructure. Mm. And 
from there that developed into first just recreational interests. I continued to camp and backpack. And then as I backpacked more on federal lands in the West, I became acquainted with issues of logging, grazing, mining, uh, overcrowding in the national parks. And so in college, I uh, did an undergrad degree in environmental science to try to better understand what the capacity is of national forests mm. to both produce resources for humans, but also to serve as home and habitat to other species. Uh, after undergrad, I did a master's degree in theology. And there I, I kind of turned to this question of, you know, what does it mean as a Christian to mm -hmm. think about caring well for God's whole creation, not just humans? And then in my uh, PhD, I turned to natural resource policy where, you know, I started uh, more effectively integrating science and law. But certainly behind that has always been the question of personal faith and also questions of the Christian theology and ethics. How mm. to do that well for me then is always informed by what it means to see the world not just as objects or ecosystems, but to see it as God's creation that God loves. A more holistic way of understanding the interconnectedness of that, I guess, uh, rather than sort of, um, uh, you know, putting it in its own, putting creation in its own box out there somewhere. Um, that's what I'm working on. Yeah. I, I think that's a good transition to um, how we got connected. Uh, a colleague of mine here in the Penn State State College community uh, noticed that you were doing a seminar um, titled God, Guns, and the 2020 Election. Um, some people might scratch their head and think, how is it that a person who, uh, you know, is passionate about uh, creation would get to sort of that subject matter? But um, I, I think it'd be helpful to start there, maybe. Like, was it something in, our, in this work to try and understand how we relate to creation that gets you into the political sphere? It was, and it actually, that talk came out of uh, the book that I published just uh, this past September, the book you mentioned, This Land is My Land, Rebellion in the West. Hmm. Uh, I had written two other books on federal lands, history and policy, and both of those were sort of straightforward history and policy. Yeah. Uh, you know, they were about science, law, management. And This Land is My Land is a book that I started thinking that I would be doing the same thing. Hmm. Um, and I started that book after a couple of armed standoffs in Oregon and Nevada over federal resources. Oh, yeah. So there was a, uh, listeners might remember uh, a standoff in Nevada where a rancher named Cliven Bundy had been grazing livestock illegally on public lands for about 20 years. And when federal agents came in to remove his cattle, uh, self-proclaimed militia people from all over the country came and stood with Clive and Bundy and stared down federal law enforcement officers. And those officers backed down. Hmm. And Clive and Bundy is still grazing his cattle illegally on public lands. And during that standoff, a, a reporter called me uh, to ask about public, some general public lands questions. The reporter lived in New York City uh, and was British and I think to him, the scenes that he was seeing out of Nevada were just bizarre. Uh, mm -hmm. His first question to me was, Jamie, is this really happening? <laughs> and uh, there was a, another, there were many other standoffs, but another one that got national attention happened in 2016 when two of Clive and Bundy's sons, uh, with militia help, occupied a wildlife refuge in eastern Oregon. And they were there for. I mean, the, the total occupation was about 41 days. Uh, in the end, uh, they were arrested. Another occupier was shot and killed by police. And again, this question to me of how and why is this happening? Yeah. And so I started the book looking at the federal land conflicts involved. In both cases, it was about livestock grazing on land owned by the federal government. Um, but as I started that work... I, I began to appreciate that I couldn't understand the occupations 
just by looking from a policy perspective. In fact, these weren't really about uh, livestock grazing. That was just uh. the spark. And I, I realized that I couldn't, even to my own satisfaction, make sense of what was going on unless I connected uh, those incidents, both with the broader sweep of conservative politics over the last 40 years, and specifically with the role of evangelicals and Mormons in American politics. Hmm. So the book then really shifted. It still has, uh, some people might not appreciate all of the federal laws I mentioned in the book, or <laughs> you know some of the, the federal land details, but it really morphed to sort of make sense of why is it that uh, not only does Cliven Bundy care about livestock grazing in Nevada, but Sean Hannity on Fox News celebrated <laughs> him? Why, you know, Marco Rubio, uh, a senator from Florida, when he ran in the Republican primary, said we needed to get rid of public lands. I mean, why mm. would Rubio care? Why were Christians um, joining in this coalition, sort of opposing uh, and I don't mean all Christians, but why were a, a considerable percentage of conservative Christians joining in this celebration of Clive and Bundy? Yeah. And it's out of that, then the talk, God, guns, and the 2020 election came out because I really see these the support for Bundy as something that's embedded in a, a sort of perverse American civil religion. So that's the God part. Yeah. Um, and tied to, uh, over time, that has been wedded to uh, a particular interpretation of the Second Amendment, uh, the guns part, and then thinking about uh, how that came together in this election that we just witnessed, where I think the last number I saw is 73% of white evangelicals voted for Trump. So is there something in, in your research and your work in this uh, this unique little um, slice of American identity that feels uniquely American to you? Or do we see this in other contexts? This is just um, the American version of it. Well, I can't speak with author any authority in a comparative perspective. I I certainly think that some of what we're seeing – at least the expression of it is unique to the United States. Hmm. And as far as the Western element, um, I, I think what we see in Cliven Bundy, a Nevada rancher who himself is a devout Mormon, uh, he's pretty far right within the Mormon church, but a devout Mormon, um, he has a very traditional view of gender roles. Mm -hmm. So he is the head of his household. Uh, he is, you know, a hardworking person wearing a cowboy hat. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that that here, that image of Clive and Bundy as the religiously devout American cowboy, uh, with that strong sort of sense of individualism, autonomy. Yeah. Uh, I think that that is a symbol that sort of touches or animates a, a number of elements of American identity. Yeah. And so I do think that Clive and Bundy could be a symbol or icon for, you know, a number of evangelical Christians who, even if they didn't care about livestock grazing, could see Bundy as representing a sort of older America that they'd lost. Yeah. You know, this, this is a man who really in his life on a ranch in Nevada, in, in a sense, was living before um, you know, the rights revolution of the 50s and 60s with women's rights and civil rights, uh, you know, before LGBTQ issues were discussed, uh, a man who, um, you know, was staunchly anti-federal government. Yeah. Uh, so I do think for, for many Christians uh, that, again, I don't mean all, but I think for, for a number of Christians – that could be a powerful symbol. And I think that uh, that myth of the cowboy, that myth of the American frontier, uh, I do think that is uniquely American. Hmm. I wonder sometimes about how that shapes um, American collectivism, too. I, I think especially right now in this uh, pandemic time, when we are asking 
people to to set aside personal freedoms in a sense to wear a mask to help the good of all. Um, there's a reaction against that in, in some spaces, and I wonder, I wonder if we can draw a parallel here that, you know, because uh, we have this American I ideal of individualism and independence that says I do things my way. Um, perhaps sometimes because God has told me that's the way, <laughs> but but really because it's what I believe and not what the community believes, not what the state believes, not what the country believes, um, but because it's mine. Um, can you can you speak a little bit to that individualism and how that fits into all this? You know, one of the ironies that I see with, uh, and I don't mean just to pick on Clive and Bundy, but one of the mm. ironies of that vision of the Western cowboy is that in the West, livestock uh, ranching is not possible without publicly owned land. Mm. So, and in many Western communities, uh, because your listeners may or may not know that the federal government owns roughly half of all land in the American West, the mm. 11 Western mm. states in Alaska. The federal government owns 80% of Nevada. Uh, so the federal government is the default land use manager in yeah. a state like Nevada, where Clive and Bundy lives. So there's a certain irony that there is uh, this proud individualism in a part of the country where even more than in the East, you can't function autonomously. You are so yeah. obviously and physically dependent on that which is community owned. Uh, I, I certainly think you're right that the most bizarre thing about the, um, to me about the last six months has been the way in which the face mask could become such a powerful political marker of identity. Yeah. Um, and then I would say, not only do we see that statement, um, that I, I don't need to wear a mask. And you see a variety of arguments. Some people say it's because the science doesn't confirm that I need to wear a mask. But for most people, it's that's my choice. Um, you know, this, these are some of the same arguments you would have heard about motorcycle helmet laws, seatbelt laws. You know, as an American, I have the right to make my own decisions, even if those decisions are going to hurt me. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that is my fundamental right. Uh, and then in this case, you also see, at least in Michigan, I've seen the way in which guns are deployed as a symbolic defense of that right not to wear a mask. Mm. So in Michigan, around the state capitol, we've had yeah. the Proud Boys, you know, the Michigan Mi uh, Liberty Militia and others, because that that symbol, that mask becomes the symbol of not just a desire of mine for individualism, but a belief that this is a God-given right, or if you don't believe in God, a sort of right conferred by a higher power that no one can tell me what to do. And uh, I think that, that that is remarkably destructive in our politics. Not that we need to agree, but I'm particularly concerned that guns, the means and symbol of violence, are some of the first tools deployed to to at least symbolically defend that right? I think one of the biggest challenges of the the polarization of this moment is that there there's a significant group of people just saying, um, "Can't we just agree to disagree?" But but some of these things, like uh, <laughs> a virus in a pandemic or like uh, firearms, mm -hmm. um, have a, a bigger impact than just one individual. Um, so is it is it uh, something that we need to be actively engaging as people of faith to, to counteract? Or can we sort of coexist in a country with, with some of us believing in a collectivism and some of us um, holding on to our guns <laughs> for the sake of our individualism? The talk I gave on God, guns, and the 2020 election, in, in that talk, I was answering the question, how did militias, you know, sort of unorganized private militias become mainstream in America? Yeah. So in the 70s, militias were essentially, or they were primarily white supremacist groups or tax evaders who were checking out of society and building utopias 
uh, around the country. And today, you know, some of those militia organizations, um, things like uh, groups like the Three Percenters, Oath Keepers, you know, these are groups that draw sort of mainstream Americans, just, you know, people who say, I'm a good conservative patriot. Mm-hmm. So in that talk, I was asking, you know, how did we get here to the point um, that militias, there was room for militias in the sort of mainstream conservative coalition. And uh, I want to come back in a minute to this issue of civil religion. But I think one of the things that's brought us here is the civil religious identity, a belief that our constitution gives us guns precisely so that we can defend ourselves against our own government mm-hmm. if it overreaches its authority. But I think um, the last step in bringing those militias into the mainstream uh, has been a sort of breakdown in common sources of information and truth. Mm. And that I think is one of the hardest things to change. So it's not just that we can agree to disagree, meaning, look, I see that the risk of virus transmission is, you know, there's a 20% probability that I'll get it. And so you can choose to wear a mask and I won't. That would be agreeing to disagree. I think one of the problems we have now is we don't agree on basic sources of information. Yeah about which we can even disagree. So the fact that we have Republican candidates in Congress who won, who throughout their campaign have been pushing QAnon conspiracy theories. Yeah. Um, You know, 20 years ago, even those theories would have been very marginal in American politics. There would have been a few, um, even members of Congress, but the degree to which that's mainstream my concern is how can we de- agree to disagree on reality? Yeah. Uh, that, that's a, and, and the problem I see there, it's not uh, exclusively or even fundamentally technological. Uh, but when we see uh, social media, uh, when we see the tools that we have now to choose the reality in which we want to live, um, that just makes that tendency much easier and harder to ever break out of that uh, exactly that bubble or those silos yeah. that we find ourselves. We're going to take a quick break now to thank our sponsors and invite you to consider sponsoring Ing Podcast. You can also play a big part in helping us spread the word about this podcast by giving our new Facebook page a like and sharing your favorite Ing Podcast episodes with friends encouraging them to subscribe and join this movement of leading, growing, and being as people of faith. Thank you for your continued support of this podcast. In challenging times, how do we prepare for tomorrow? Invest in the path ahead with hope and sharing, love and caring, and with help from Everence. Many of us are taking it day by day, step by step. How can we make room for financial strategies and the Holy Spirit to help guide us for the longer term? Financial services for a purpose. Visit us today at everance.com. A question that uh, has been going through my mind as we've been speaking is how is it that a real estate tycoon from Queens, New York becomes the symbol at least politically in this country, for that cowboy militia individualism of the West. How, <laughs> how is it um, that, that President Trump becomes the person that people rally behind? Is it, is it simply what you were saying about how information is, is translated or mistranslated right now? Or is something else happening here? I, I, I'm curious, you included... Um, President Trump, President Trump, in the title of your seminar, and uh, um, so, or at least the 2020 election in your seminar, and so I'm curious if you could speak to that for just a moment. Sure, and I, you know, I do think I have a partial answer. I would recommend uh, for a future podcast that you talk with one of my colleagues here at Calvin, Kristen Cobus Dumay. Okay, she uh, published a book in June entitled Jesus and John Wayne. Mm. 
and it's a study of evangelical Christianity and masculinity. Hmm. And so I think that's a layer of analysis that I won't offer now, but is really <laughs> important to understanding Trump. W- worth um, checking out, yeah. Yeah, because what she argues, uh, and I, I argue as well, is that uh, many of us misunderstood the evangelical vote for Trump in 2016. Uh, many of us looked at it initially and said, well, evangelicals are holding their nose and voting for Trump because of abortion yeah. or because of uh, – and, and really because then of court appointments. Um, but over four years and even in this last election, we see that the 82 percent of evangelicals who voted for him in 2016 – of white evangelicals, sorry – and the 73% of white evangelicals who voted for him this year, yeah. um, you know, the, the surveys show they did so enthusiastically. They're drawn to him. Uh, and what's more and really puzzling, we have people like Michelle Bachman, former representative mm-hmm. in Congress, who who argued uh, that, that Trump is the most Christian and biblical president we've ever have had or ever will have. Yeah. You know, we have people like um, uh, Baptist pastor in Texas, Jeffress, you know, who has said, uh, you know, he was asked in just after 20, just before 2016, don't you want a president more like Jesus? And he said, absolutely not. I would never vote for Jesus. You know, the work of the president in dealing with groups like ISIS and other problems, we need the meanest son of a you know what we can get for that job. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I do think that uh, you're right in seeing that Trump then becomes a symbol of that cowboy. That the question, the other part of your question is how or why. Yeah. I mean, after all, he he does not appear to have ever really worked a day in his life <laughs> on the ranch, and right. so I, you know, I don't necessarily see that the kind of, you know, uh, calloused hands and and certainly not the outfits of a cowboy. I, I do think that for Christians, at least, this goes back to an issue of uh, American civil religion. And by that, I keep using that phrase, um, civil religion itself goes all the way back to the Puritans in America. I mean, it's this notion that the United States is God's country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a city on the hill. It's a light to the nation. And you can see some very positive things in that, in the sense that if the nation strives in its law, in its foreign policy, to advance uh, justice, peace, mercy, uh, it could be doing things that align with the Bible and with Christianity. Uh, the problem with the civil religion is uh, it begins with the assumption that the United States is already baptized as a Christian nation, that it mm. is a Christian nation, that what it does is necessarily God's will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it really leads to, I think, the end of the sort of critical reflection that Christians need to be doing about the nation. This is not a choice between being patriotic or not. This is a choice between believing that the United States is the anointed one of God, yeah, uh, you know, that can do no wrong, and believing that the United States is a nation among nations that is prone to the same uh, problems of sin and disorder um, that any human institution is. And uh, the, the steps, I think, that happen with Trump... Uh, if we go back to, let's say, the Cold War, uh, many Christians rallied around the United States as God's nation over and against communism and the Soviet Union. And the parallels here were, um, you know, the United States is, quote, Christian. The United States is has free market capitalism. The United States also has guns. But uh, mm-hmm. the United States has freedom of religion. So it was, uh, we begin to see all the things that are the United States as that which is good over and against all that is the Soviet Union as bad. Um, And you also see in this period 
I think particularly when I start to look in the 60s and 70s and see the way in which many conservative Christian writers um, no longer differentiate among those elements. In other words, seeing yeah. free market capitalism as God's plan. As Christian. Yeah. Uh, seeing individual freedom as fundamentally Christian, as the only yeah. the, the Christian approach. Um, now, I am finally getting back to Trump, which is to say, uh, when I look at the period in which evangelical Christians really became a force in American politics, the way they are at present, we see the rise of evangelicals in the 1970s. In the late 70s and early 80s, you can go back and see the formation of a really immense infrastructure of political organizations, think tanks, foundations, uh, both you know conservative political ones like the Federalist Society, but also groups like Focus on the Family, yeah, um, and uh, and Christian organizations focused on family issues. In the eighties, then particularly under Ronald Reagan, Reagan really brought evangelicals squarely into the Republican coalition. You know, I, I think you'd be hard to say any any president in my lifetime has been more evangelical than Jimmy Carter. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and not exactly a Republican. So uh, Reagan brings evangelicals into that coalition. Uh, he didn't lure them in. I mean, they were they were happy to join the coalition. And if you look back at that period, people were saying we have to defeat communism, we need to protect capitalism, but and this was really important. We also need our leaders to have moral integrity. We need Christian values to to guide what we do. And uh, and as you move forward, uh, I think people became very disillusioned with uh, even with Reagan, but certainly with George H. W. Bush and George W. Bush, um, in that they were not returning to us the country that we that the rightful heirs as Christians. Um, think that the country needs to be. Uh, they might have done good things, but Ronald Reagan did not, you know, eliminate the vast federal bureaucracy. George W. Bush, with his conservative, uh, compassionate conservatism, um, you know, didn't stop LGBTQ issues. Uh, you know, there were all kinds of complaints. And so I, what I see is finally when we get to Trump, uh, evangelicals committed to this coalition are saying, look, all of our, I mean, I don't mean they're saying this consciously, but there's a sense in which all of those earlier efforts to sort of, you know, uh, maybe pursue some changes here and there, some in, uh, incremental changes, they failed. Yeah. Um, what we need is in fact someone who's going to come in and blow up the system that is corrupt and allow us to kind of repristinate the nation. Yeah. And no, um, you know, other than the story of Jesus and the, the money changers in the temple, Jesus is not the image <laughs> of the president we think we need to do this. Yeah. We need someone who's going to ride in on a horse, who's going to slay our adversaries, and and basically clear the deck so yeah. that we can rebuild the America that we remember. Uh, you know, the number of images I've seen of Trump, uh, you know, paintings or, or computer generated images of Trump as the crusader. I mean, yeah. literally, you know, in yeah. the garb of a crusader to drive back the pagans and the heathens that have taken over our land. No, Christians think of this, I would assume, metaphorically, but it's a pretty dangerous uh, position to be in when, as a Christian, you're looking back at the Crusades for a model, even metaphorical, of how we need to be in the present. Right after the 2016 election, I asked uh, someone I know who's a, a staunch libertarian, I asked him, uh, how did you vote for Trump? Trump is not a libertarian. Right. And the, the man said, well, Jamie, Trump's his own political animal. He says, but Trump has a case of dynamite and a box of matches, and that's what this country needs. Yeah. So I do think by the time we get to Trump, Trump's genius as a politician uh, 
is and was to mobilize fear, anger, and anxiety, and then to set himself as, I don't think it's too strong to say, a messianic figure. Um, But that's not the right term, messianic, because I think when I when I listen to a kind of militant Christian conversation about Trump, it isn't the Messiah that people are looking for. It is the Old Testament God who drives out, um, you know, the pagan nations and brings yeah. Israel into the promised land. It is, it is not the God of the, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it is the God of power. Uh, who is going to wipe out obstacles to the nation that we, we as maybe, you know, various Christians think that the United States needs to be. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm fascinated um, in this connection to freedom and guns uh, that, that we've touched on here just a couple of times. And especially during contentious political times, I think 2020 was the, um, the year with the highest amount of gun sales ever in American history. And I don't think we're seeing just conservatives buying them. I think during the pandemic, there's been a lot of fear around, um, you know, shortages in the grocery store. And do I really trust my neighbor? And um, I, I don't have any statistics to back this up, but I, my hunch is that we have moved from guns being fairly partisan. Uh, I, I do know that, that, up until this year, uh, most of our gun buying um, power has come from one side of the political aisle. But I wonder if we, if the fear that our culture is experiencing right now, uh, which may perhaps be leading to more firearms purchased by everyone, will start to disconnect us from a, uh, guns being a one-sided thing to really a national thing that we that we need to be wrestling with. I'm not. I'm not sure that that's um, <laughs> worth spending any more time on, but it just strikes me as something interesting that um, who knows what 2021 will teach us about uh, where we find ourselves uh, with this sort of guns and politics a moment in time. And, and perhaps the pandemic is creating a unique space for, for this to all come into the same melting pot. I don't know. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. I haven't seen any data either, so I – I don't know how gun sales have changed in terms of uh, political ideology. I do know that, you know, while militia activity is still overwhelmingly uh, right wing yeah. and it is overwhelmingly white, yeah. uh, we have seen the emergence in just the last, just during this election, of, you know, at least one significant black militia group, mm-hmm. um, NFA. And, uh, you know, this is a group that's basically saying, uh, listen, we can't just let the proud boys and particularly the explicitly white supremacist groups walk parade around with guns and intimidate us. So, you know, now you have a black militia that's arming, they're marching at stone mountain in Georgia. They're marching at various uh, rallies around the country. Uh, and so that does concern me that, um, I don't know, maybe on the one hand you could say, Hey, it's a good thing. It's not partisan anymore. On the <laughs> other hand, um, if everyone's armed, yeah. uh, then it seems inevitable that violence will follow. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the, one of the real, interesting things, and I I don't mean that lightly, but when I look at the Black Lives Matter um, protests, and some of them certainly have led to significant property damage. Some of those protests have led to violence. Um, But, you know, the reality is, and I don't have empirical data on this, but it seems entirely reasonable to say that the reality for particularly a black man holding a gun compared to a white man holding a gun is really significant. I mean, those are not the same uh, images. They don't get the same response from law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So one of my other concerns with, uh, you know, the guns being such an important symbol in the militia is that it is really hard to separate that from racial uh, disparities. Yeah. And the fact that it is a way of reinforcing 
uh, a kind of power that white men still enjoy in our society and uh, communicating that we are going to defend that power against anyone who threatens it. Hmm. And uh, I'm, yeah, I'm deeply concerned because, you know, the NRA, the National Rifle Association, uh, in fact, their, their interpretation of the, the Second Amendment, which we have now, didn't emerge till the late 70s. So that the, the really militant NRA just emerged in, in my lifetime. And, you know, the NRA's argument is that the, the solution to our problems is for good people to have guns. Yeah. Um, and I think what, I mean, one of the unspoken assumptions is that uh, the good people, the us, we, uh, you know, both have access to guns to purchase them and also do not put ourselves at risk of being shot by police just for holding guns. Yeah. And so uh, that notion of good people with guns is really about saying certain people, and we're not here necessarily talking about character, we're talking about certain demographic groups, Yeah. the people that should be armed. And I think it's going to be very problematic for the NRA for the militia groups, if all of us are armed, because mm-hmm. now how will we tell who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? Right. In Florida, the Santos, the governor is proposing legislation that would expand Florida's stand your ground laws. And the stand your ground laws permit you to, um, use violent force if you believe your life is threatened. And, but, but the threshold for that is somewhat low. He's proposing a law that would expand that so that you can legally shoot someone who's rioting uh, for property destruction if what you believe is that their action is going to lead to a, a threat on your life. Mm-hmm. So made the justification for violent force even lower. So it's not even directly now an argument from physical self-defense. It's, I haven't read the details of the law, but it's expanding that notion that we don't necessarily trust the police to do enough work. We need to basically, what, deputize all American citizens yeah. as um, a kind of standing informal militia that has no direct accountability, no training. Uh, that to me is a fundamental attack on a kind of peaceful and civil society. Feels very uh, sort of dystopian future too. <laughs> yeah, well, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Um, some of our listeners might be uh, Googling your name right now, as I did before our conversation began, and, uh, and uncover another uh, James Skillen. Um, Jamie, just off mic, you were talking about your relationship with that other person, and I wonder if you could speak to uh, that relationship. And I know um, there's been some work on this political moment with that other James Skillen. Yes, so my name is James R. Skillen. Uh, My father, James W. Skillen, uh, who's retired now, uh, he has worked in political theology and political philosophy his whole career. Uh, He directed... Uh, an organization called the Center for Public Justice in Washington, D.C. And they really work to educate Christians on civic responsibility. And they also did some work on uh, various policy issues such as welfare reform, education, etc. And when I left my graduate work, uh, I was moving pretty clearly into the study of federal lands and resources. My father was writing uh, political theology and, and political commentary. And then, as I described with this, the book, um, you know, I found that I had to come back to religion and politics mm-hmm. to understand a federal land issue. And so it really has been a, a lot of fun to connect with my father's work. And I am uh, certainly shaped by it, both consciously and unconsciously. Uh, that's what we do to our children. And, <laughs> um, and so it's been a lot of fun to sort of bring our interest, see where our interests intersect and uh, to work on that. My, my father's most recent book is entitled God's Sabbath with Creation. And it is largely an exploration of the biblical foundation for 
uh, for politics. And so some of your listeners might be interested in that, uh, God's Sabbath with creation. Hmm. My father and I have written uh, a few things on Trump and conservative Christianity. And the most recent is an essay uh, that was published in a book uh, called the, entitled The Spiritual Danger of Donald Trump. It was edited by Ron Sider. And in that essay, we try to explain, uh, and of course, I think we do explain, but <laughs> other people can decide if that's the case, uh, evangelical support for Trump. Uh, we talk about the, the nature of American civil religion, as I just have. But the other, I think, really interesting insight that my father brought to that essay is that, you know, if we think about our identities, uh, religious and otherwise, as formed by narratives, right? They're formed by the stories we tell about who we are and where we came from. Yeah. And in that essay, we argue that one of the challenges we see in American partisanship and really deeply held but conflicting views of government actually go back to two competing um, exodus stories. I mean, sort of origin narratives or exodus stories in the United States. One of them, which you see at Cliven Bundy's ranch, you see in, uh, in Trumpism, you see in less offensive ways, uh, around the United States is an Exodus story where, you know, America was itself good. I mean, it was still civil religious. It was God's nation, but we were enslaved by Britain, mm-hmm. uh, by God's grace. We overthrew the tyrants. We crossed the red sea into the promised land of the United States. And we embraced, uh, individual freedom. And that was the sort of Edenic state of, uh, you know, just entering into the promised land, a yeah. uh, kind of libertarian vision of America. And uh, of course, then any sort of growth of federal government, particularly government regulation, is interpreted as returning to Egypt, uh, choosing to go back into slavery that we escaped. And mm-hmm. in fact, in many of these uh, what's interesting to me in many of the rallies that I see or these standoffs, not only do you hear the rhetoric of the American Civil War, but uh, I see people in costumes of King George hmm. in the redcoats. I mean, yeah. it's, it is getting back to the origin of who we are and what our freedom means. Yeah. Now, the problem with that narrative, which I, I hope is clear to people, is that, of course, the people who were liberated – we're a pretty narrow slice of America. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, in in the late 18th century, women couldn't vote. Uh, people of color could be enslaved. So that that release or the freedom was really only for white landowning males. Hmm. Um, and so I get really concerned when I hear about, hey, let's return to the garden because I'm looking back at that garden and thinking. Yeah, that doesn't look <laughs> that looks problematic to me. Yeah. And and we argue there's a competing Exodus narrative um, that is particularly important for African Americans, uh, but much more broadly. Uh, and that is this idea that our enslavement actually was under the tyranny of white supremacy, of patriarchy, so that the real Christian nation, you know, God's nation where there's liberty and justice for all, was put into language in our founding documents, but wasn't realized with slavery, with yeah. uh, prior to women's suffrage, etc. And so, uh, in that narrative, uh, there's quite the opposite uh, understanding of liberation because liberation from from Egypt actually came through the federal government. Hmm. If it weren't for the federal government, right, we wouldn't have had school integration. You know, we wouldn't have had uh, women's suffrage. We wouldn't have had uh, the rights revolution of the 50s and 60s. And I think what you're seeing, what you saw with uh, particularly African-American votes for uh, President Obama and now even Joe Biden, and what you'll hear, I think, from environmentalists from any group that feels their 
they're sort of speaking for the long marginalized in our country. Mm -hmm. They're calling on the federal government to use its power to actually fulfill the vision of uh, the Constitution and of our founding documents. So one, one narrative makes us look back to our origin as the model of how we want to live. And the other narrative makes us look forward to a different society in which, you know, finally all people will enjoy that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. And most Americans are not thinking this, yeah. <laughs> right? It's not as though people say, ah, yes, Jimmy and, and Jill, gather around. Let me tell you about where we came from. Yeah. But I think that that basic impulse, right, is uh, to see both the sources of our bondage and the sources of our liberation in such different time periods and from yeah. such different sources. One is the individual being liberated from government. The other is government helping liberate individuals from power dynamics in the economy and in society. Yeah. I spent a semester abroad in South Africa during college, and um, one of the most vivid memories I carry from that time is a, a white man who approached me um, and said, uh, son, I wish you'd been here during the apartheid movement. It was a white man's paradise. And, wow. you know, that was jarring for, for a right. somewhat sheltered um, uh, college student to hear. Um, but I wonder sometimes if that's how some of what we say here in, in American politics feels to, to people of color. You know, if only we, we could return to this moment, um, so often overlooks the, the pain and the violence that a certain group of people were feeling. And, uh, and we say it sort of candidly and nostalgically, um, and it feels maybe a little bit more permissible because we're further away from it than, say, South Africa is from apartheid. Um, but it's uh, fascinating how... The stories we tell uh, sound very differently depending on who we are telling them to. I know that a significant portion of Ing Podcast's listeners are people who would consider themselves to be church leaders, both clergy and also just lay leadership within congregations. Um, what we've been talking about here is, is challenging stuff. Do you have a word of wisdom or advice on how uh, congregations can be tackling um, God guns and the 2020 election. <laughs> well, right. I, I certainly won't um, fix the problem. I, there are a number <laughs> of things, though, that I think are hopeful. Yeah. And then I would like to, um, to suggest sort of two different approaches within the Christian tradition to dealing with our absolute political dysfunction at the moment. So first, I would say that uh, the first thing churches need to be, individual congregations need to be, is a place where we can seek common information and we can disagree well. Disagreement, disagreeing well is a moral achievement and, um, and it is increasingly difficult. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things we're seeing in the church is um, these political divides are so deep that at least anecdotally, I'm seeing church membership shift mm. in terms of, you know, our, do you support Trump or not? Yeah. Uh, and that kind of litmus test, I think we as Christians need to be called back to say our primary allegiance is to Christ. Um, and we need to start from that common commitment and common understanding and move out from there into our points of disagreement. Uh, I'm actually very grateful to be at Calvin University where uh, one of the things I'm most proud of is the fact that I think it's not unique, but I think it is somewhat rare among uh, Christian colleges, the sort of evangelical colleges, that the Christian identity is not tied to political identity. Mm. And so I, I feel like here I still have really rich uh, conversation and disagreement uh, across the political spectrum. And but we, we don't lose sight of the fact that we are children of God and we are seeking to serve God in the world. Um, and the way that Christians do that, first and foremost, isn't even by discussing politics. It is through worship. Mm. You know, the power of worship is turning our attention to God and the very meaning of Sabbath, uh, you know, Sabbath worship, Sabbath rest, isn't just 
hey, let's take a break on Sunday. Let's sit back in, a, in an easy chair and relax after a hard week's work. Sabbath rest and Sabbath worship is directing our attention to God and being reminded that it is God who holds on to us and holds the world together. Mm. And it's that pause and collective re- redirection of our attention to God that I think is essential because within the church, it is, you know, if you're within a worshiping community that worships weekly or, or twice a week, um, it's those, the kind of routine or ritual of that, that's returning our attention to God. Um, I mean, obviously we see God through a political lens too, but it, it is um, shared vision, at least momentarily. And that can provide the foundation, I think, for uh, better disagreement about politics. Yeah. In, in a broader sense, and I need to add a little um, autobiography here. Uh, so the home I grew up in, my father's work in political theology comes out of the Reformed Protestant tradition and particularly out of the Dutch Reformed Protestant tradition. And my mother grew up in an Anabaptist community, Brethren in Christ. And um, so the first thing you should know is that, you know, in my household, dealing with questions of just war were complicated. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, my my father is, you know, more on the side of just war theory. My mother's a, a staunch pacifist. And so I've negotiated that tension by basically concluding that war is just in theory. We just haven't had one yet. Mm -hmm. Um, That allows me to deal with my, you know, parental dynamics. But I I do think as I look at the two traditions that my parents come out of, I actually do see two really important, but meaningfully different ways of addressing religion and politics, which I think are so dysfunctional at the moment. Um, I'm not a church historian, uh, but, you know, in my understanding, if we look at the Anabaptist tradition, Mennonite and Brethren in Christ, a variety of others, uh, and I look at, you know, people like Christian social ethicists, Stanley Hauerwas, mm-hmm. I think one of the, the really important roles of the church and, and drawing on that tradition is just to be the church, it's, it's to be the church in the world and yeah. to be a witness by demonstrating Christ's love, justice, mercy within an alternative community um, that is distinct from the halls of power in Washington, that depending on the Anabaptist tradition, some even take uh, a very dim view of government, right, as something that uh, one shouldn't participate in. Yeah. Uh, other traditions don't. Uh, go quite that far, but it's this, what does it mean to be the church and to be the church uh, following and modeling the teaching and the life of Jesus Christ? Um, You know, that model is one of love. Um, Mm -hmm. It it still is one of justice. So there's judgment involved. Um, But I think for uh, many of our churches, just to ask that again, in a society at the moment, that is driven by partisan division. Um, and it's division that's cutting right through the children of God. Uh, in a society where, you know, we're seeing, it could be temporary with a pandemic, but we're seeing escalating gun violence. Mm-hmm. You know, we're seeing uh, the sort of animus and hate-filled speech of our political realm. What does it mean to be the church and to speak in love? So I think we need that right now. Uh, The other tradition, and and this I draw on more uh, on a kind of Protestant Reformed and Roman Catholic tradition, which uh, is is really saying uh, Christians need to transform the institutions of the world, including government. And um, some of my evangelical friends might say that's exactly what we're doing, right, by (laughs) By winning elections. Right. And where I, I think that they're missing something critical is I actually think they they have such a dim and negative view of government that the purpose of government then becomes simply wielding enough power to uh, make sure you protect the interests of the church or the interests mm-hmm. of Christians. Yeah. Whereas I think if you really dig into the political theology of 
Protestant Reform and Roman Catholic traditions, the language you're going to hear is the language of public justice and public good. So that the reason why Christians should be in politics is not to win a culture war so that, you know, Christianness out, uh, you know, defeats secularism. So mm-hmm. that, you know, when I go to the store, the greeter there will say Merry Christmas and not Happy Holidays. Um, that has nothing to do, I think, biblically with the purpose and meaning of government. Yeah, so yeah. I think within that tradition, what we need to recover in the political theology is what is government's role in advancing justice for all people? What is government's role in sort of uh, shaping a just society? Mm-hmm. And so those, those, that language of public justice and the common good or um, – you know, the public good, uh, that language is then seen as a purpose that transcends my particular identity, even as a Christian. Um, in other words, as a Christian, I'm to, to uh, try to advance uh, God's justice. Yeah. But it transcends my identity as a man, uh, you know, as a white man, as a Christian man, so that it really gives government, in my mind, a constructive and positive and forward-looking purpose, not just a blunt instrument with which to defend my interests or try to recreate uh, a memory I have of uh, earlier United States. Now, I do want to emphasize that nothing about what I suggested, I mean, I don't want to suggest that uh, within that tradition, we're just saying government's good, we need more of it. Mm-hmm. I, I am not saying that. Um, there is plenty of critical reflection to be done on the size of government. But the more important question isn't just do we need more government or less government, which I'm afraid is how we are currently fighting it. Yeah. What we really need to ask is what is government's proper role in the various spheres of our life? Uh, because my guess is, in fact, I can think of things as we begin to look at you know more than two million civilian federal employees, my guess is we would really want to say we have too much government in some areas of life and not enough in others, or right. we have a lot of government doing the wrong thing. And so I think uh, where that tradition within Christianity or those traditions um, could provide some critical reflection is to develop a more constructive and helpful understanding of the role of government in society. Hmm. And, you know, I'm not suggesting the two traditions do completely different things or two sets of traditions, but I think both of those projects are desperately needed right now. And across those traditions, we should be doing both of those together. Jamie, that sounds like a really, um, profound final word. I, I want to thank you for for being here, for taking the time to be on Ing Podcast and to offer us some of your insight into this current moment in time for, um, for the political space in this country, but also for how we as people of faith might, um, might live our lives out in this current context. Thanks so much for the opportunity to talk with you. Uh, I've enjoyed this and look forward to uh, maybe a possibility of talking again. Thank you. Uh, if people want to find out more about what you're up to, uh, is there a space where they can follow what you're doing online? Uh, you know, I use social media pretty sparingly, uh, and I use it only for kind of my professional work. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably the easiest place is I do have a website, jamesrskillen.com, and uh, folks could see some of the recent essays I've written. Um, and also, I'd encourage people to give me a call. Uh, at 616-526-7546. Or if you'll provide also my email, jrs39 at calvin.edu. I'd be delighted to talk with people. Wonderful. Well, thank you so so much again, Jamie. And um, thanks so much for being here. Thanks. As always, we'd like to thank our guests and all who continue to support Ing Podcast. We'd like to thank Everence, a faith-based financial services organization, for their ongoing support of Ing Podcast. We'd like to send out a special word of thanks to Susan and Stan Godshaw from Harrisonburg, Virginia, for their continued support of Menno Media. 
If you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review and share the podcast with your friends. Do you have a topic or someone you think should be interviewed on Ing Podcast? Let us know by emailing theing at menomedia.org. Views and opinions expressed on Ing Podcast are those of our hosts and guests and may not represent that of Leader Magazine or Menno Media. Today's show was produced by me, Ben Weidman. Ing Podcast is a production of Menno Media, a nonprofit publisher that creates thoughtful Anabaptist resources to enrich faith in a complex world. To find out more, visit us online at menomedia.org.